0: Good evening. Welcome back uh, to Systematic Theology, and tonight we're tackling Part Two: the Providence of God. And uh, they are passing the outlines out, so make sure you uh, you get one. Um, if we run out, I don't think we will, but we can make more. I have outlines from last week if you missed it. Um, part One of the study on Providence. Um, See so if you like one of those. You can come and uh, and get one afterwards. Before we start off, I like to always show you some of the books that I'm using, and also I encourage you to get good books for, for reading on your own. Let um, me so do that as we as we get going. Um, one book here, it's a newer book by John Piper. It's called Providence. It's an excellent book. It's kind of a, a big one, but uh, it's, it's very helpful. So Piper has a few issues, but all in all, he's, uh, he's very helpful. A very good book here, Providence. John Piper, I've been using him. It's a really, really good book. The other one here is by John Frame. You've probably noticed me quoting John Frame. I did it in the previous um, class on the doctrine of God, his doctrine of the word of God. This one is called the doctrine of God. A bit more theological, but if you want to dive in and, and really study, it's a very helpful work. Frame is very clear and uh, very, very helpful, and uh, he has a lot to say about providence. <clears throat> The other one is a a little one here. Um, It's a Puritan work. It's called The Mystery of Providence by John Flavel. Um, Puritan, so it's going to take you a little bit of time to read through it probably. Read it slow, but it's very helpful. And just like all Puritans like to do, they take a biblical truth and they turn it around and help us think about how to just apply it to our lives in very skillful ways. Um, So this work isn't so much on what providence is, but how to work it out in our lives and apply it. It's a very, very helpful book. Mystery of Providence by John Flavel. Um, And then the systematic theologies I showed you last time, Wayne Grudem is a very helpful one, uh, if you would like to go there for further study. All right. This evening we come to part two of the study on the, the providence of God. To get us going, uh, I want to ask you what you remember from last week. What is God's providence? Big picture. We said a lot last week, but big picture, what do we mean by God's providence? Uh oh. We gave a few definitions. Yes. Good. Yeah. Excellent. The workings of his plan. Great. Good. Um, This might help us a bit. How does his providence differ from sovereignty? Sort of going along with what you just mentioned. How does his providence differ from his sovereignty? Yes. Yes. Good. Yep. Good. Yeah, so he says sovereignty emphasizes God's control and authority on every detail of, of life, right? Providence, though, teaches that his control is unto a goal, right? It's going somewhere. There's a purpose that's guiding everything that he's doing. Um, our key text here was in Ephesians 1.11. It says at the end that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. This verse not only highlights his work and control over all things, but that it's guided by the counsel of his will, by his determination, his plan, his purpose. So God works all things. That is sovereignty. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. That is providence. And that's what we're talking about. That's one of the main things we will discuss this evening. Just what is the purpose according to which he works all things? What is it that is guiding all of his works um, of providence? That's what we're going to call the aspect of government. That's what we're going to focus on tonight. Um, Do you remember how we divided up providence last week into three sort of categories, the nature of providence? There's three parts to it. Good. Concurrence, government, and preservation. Yeah. Concurrence, government, and, and preservation. Last week, we studied concurrence. Okay, this another big theological word, but the idea is not, not hard to grasp. What do we mean by his concurrence? What did that mean? There's two aspects to it, remember? His control is... Concurrence meaning his control... It right, has to do with his control. His control is effectual, right? So whatever he does, he always accomplishes, and it's also universal. right? There's nothing outside of his control. What were some of those things that we talked about last week that were within his control? <clears throat> All nature. right? What else? Random events. Good history, human history, human lives, even human decisions, even down to the level of sins and and evil. Nothing is outside of his providence and control. Concurrence also teaches us that God works through means. He works through instruments. It doesn't deny that there's other causes for things. It doesn't deny that there's scientific laws and meteorology and different things that are governing Um, what happens. But it teaches that God ultimately stands behind all of these things as the ultimate cause, Um, even of those things, whether it's weather phenomena or human decisions. That's a very important point to make because when we speak of human decisions and even sins, we need to emphasize that man chooses and does what he desires to choose and do. Um, His choices are really his choices, right? Because they come from where? They come from his, his heart. They come from his desire. It's what he wants to do. In um, that way, man is responsible for his life. And yet in the Bible, we're told that God is in complete control over the decision and actions of, of people, such that his purposes are always accomplished through them, even in their willing actions. And how God does that is largely a mystery. Uh, We're not allowed to pry into that. How does He he do that? We don't don't know. We're told that He can harden the heart and soften a heart and give favor in a heart. Um, The point is, He's able to work such that people do what He wants them to do. Um, So man is free in the sense that He does what He wants to do, right? But man is not free in the sense that He can do something outside of God's plan and purpose. And man is not free in that he can do something outside of slavery to sin. Man is enslaved to, to sin. So that was all last week. okay? And now that we've surveyed and got a basic idea of God's control and how he works through means and there's still human responsibility and divine sovereignty, we can move on to investigating what is guiding this control. Unto what ends is God doing all that he is, is doing? And this is his government and preservation. His government. Now, what do we mean by government? Um, we've already alluded to it uh, several times, but let me show you a previous definition we saw last week of God's providence. I'm not going to read it all, but look at the very last line. He does all these things to the praise of the glory of His wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. That is His government. Wayne Grudem put it simply, God has a purpose in all that He does in the world, and He providentially governs or directs all things in order that they accomplish His purposes this government there's a purpose that's guiding all that God does so look at our key text again Ephesians 1:11 it says god works all things according to the counsel of his will <clears throat> but before we unpack god's government and just seek to know what his purposes are and what His will is, according to which which He works all things, we need to ask what we mean by His purpose. What do we mean by His will? God wills many things in Scripture, right? But not all of them come to pass. Can you think of some? God is not willing that any should should perish. But some perish, right? Right? God desires for His will to be done on earth as it's done in heaven, but it's often not done. God desired that people love and obey His Son, but they crucified Him instead, right? But if that's true, then how can we reconcile that with verses like Psalm 115.3? Our God is in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases. Or, our verse here, He works all things according to the plan of, of his desire, right? So is this a contradiction? Sure seems like it is. There's many things that he desires which do not take place. Or perhaps these verses do not mean that his control is always effectual or that his control is always universal. Perhaps God has a plan which he desires to come to pass and which he works to help it come to pass but which he cannot make come to pass. Is that the right answer? Well, in order to answer this dilemma, we need to think a bit about God's decrees. God's decrees. In order to understand God's government, how it relates to providence, we need to think correctly about what it means for God to decree or purpose. He works according to the counsel of his will, his purpose, the plan of his desire. What is that? And the answer to our dilemma is not to deny the clear meaning of text that we've already seen, like Psalm 115 or Ephesians 1 or anything that we saw last week. All things are in God's effectual control. His rule is over all. He accomplishes all of His purposes, right? Isaiah 46.10, that's what it says. He says, I will accomplish all my purpose, which implies that all that happens is in accord with with his purpose. So if something happened which was not according to God's purpose, then we would ask, Well, God, what did you purpose to happen? And he will say, Well, I purpose this other thing over here to happen that didn't happen. And we would say, Well, what about Isaiah 46.10, Where it said, You accomplish all of your purpose. That would not be true, right? So, the answer is not to deny any of these texts, but to understand how the Bible would have us reconcile them with other passages which speak of God's desire not coming to pass. And as we study the Bible, we come to learn that God has two wills. God has two wills there's God's decreed will, and there's God's desired will. You could call it His decreed plan. In God's desire, his will of decree and his will of desire. There are things that God has decreed that will take place and they always do take place. And there are things which God desires and takes pleasure in, which he's not decreed will take place and which do not always take place. So let's look at these really quickly. God's will of decree. God's will of decree stands for his eternal purpose... Whereby he has determined all that will come to pass. Let me show you, show you a few more passages. Psalm thirty-three, eleven: the counsel, the plan of the Lord stands forever; the plans of his heart to all generations. Acts two, twenty-three: this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan. The Greek is the boule, it has to do with a plan, a purpose, intention of God, you crucified. Acts 4, to do whatever your hand and your plan, again, the, your boule had predestined to take place. Ephesians 3.11, it was according to the eternal purpose that he's realized in Christ Jesus, our, our Lord. This plan or decree or purpose is eternal. So you see that here in 3.11? It's the eternal purpose. And it's free, it's without compulsion, it's the plan of his desire. Nothing forced him to make the plan that he did. Psalm 135, the Lord does whatever he pleases. So those are his decrees, his will of decree. But on the other hand, God has many desires which he has not decreed will take place. And we know them because they're reflected in his moral law, right? He desires that people tell the truth. He desires that people repent from sin. He desires that people trust in Jesus. He desires that people not steal or or murder. Um, We find out his desire in his law. We find it out in other places in the Bible, too. He's not willing, desiring that any should perish. This is his will of, of desire. But these desires of his do not always take place. In fact, the opposite often takes place. So this is the crux of the the matter. You can put it this way. God can and often does decree things to take place, which certainly do take place, which on one level are at odds with what He delights in, like people perishing, like people stealing, like people crucifying Jesus. But he decrees this in order to achieve a greater desire and purpose. So let me illustrate this for you. The example of the fall. In one sense, God did not desire Adam to rebel against him by eating from the tree and plunging the entire human race into death and depravity. Sin grieves the heart of God. So, Genesis 6:5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. God did not delight in the rebellion of man. And yet, while God did not delight in Adam's sin, and while Adam was fully responsible for his sin, God nevertheless planned and purposed and decreed the fall to happen. And we know this because were it not his purpose, it would not have happened, right? Based on on all the other texts we have seen. But we also know it from texts like Revelation 13.8. It says that all who dwell on the earth will worship the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world look at this: in the book of the life of the Lamb, who is slain. Before the foundation of the world, this book was written could mean that the book was written before the foundation of the world or that the lamb was slain in the mind of God before the foundation of the world. But either way, the point is the same. He means before creation, it was God's purpose that Christ would die as a lamb to redeem and restore his fallen creation, which means that it was God's plan and purpose that Adam sinned and do something which ultimately God did not delight in. Why did he do this? Because there's something he desired even more than a creation that never experienced sin. And what that something is, we're going to explain in in a little bit. Okay? So that's example one. Let me give you another. Skip this one for time. Look at this one. This is a very common one. 1 Timothy 2.4. God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of God. Of the truth. That's true. God desires that. He does not delight in the condemnation of the wicked, but in salvation and in mercy. That's what fills God's heart with delight, showing mercy. And notice that last phrase the knowledge of the truth. That stands for true conversion, salvation. That's what God desires. But look at 2 Timothy. Chapter 2, verse 25. Look at the same phrase. Talks about the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. That's that same phrase. You see that? God, while 1 Timothy 2.4 desires that all come to the knowledge of the truth. Here, for his own purposes, grants some, not all, the gift of repentance to come to the knowledge of truth. While he desires all to be saved in one sense and another sense for a greater purpose, he does not give the gift of repentance. um, Even though he could. He has a greater desire that's governing him and driving him. Um, and we're going to talk about what that is in just a minute. So let me say it again. God can and often does decree things to take place, which certainly do take place, which on one level are at odds with what he delights in, but he does this in order to achieve a greater desire and purpose. And this concept shouldn't be too hard for us. Um, we do things like this all the time on the creaturely level. Um, We determine to do things which are at odds with our desire because we want some greater desire to happen. So, parents, you discipline your children even though you do not delight in inflicting pain and going through that process. But you do it because you desire a greater end, right? Or you deny yourself a bowl of ice cream because... Bypass that temporary pleasure because you have a greater desire for which you are aiming, um, and certainly those are trivial examples, uh, but they help us to see that it's the case for God on an even greater, more profound way. Um, he has desires, but he's often forgoes those in order to achieve a greater desire. <clears throat> Let's move on now to what is that desire? What is the thing? What is that greater thing that is driving and governing all of God's decrees? All the things that God is at work at in His providence. Any questions before we go on? Okay. God's purposes. What is God's ultimate purpose behind His providence? The ultimate purpose of God... Governing his decrees. This is the essential idea of God's government. He controls and causes all things to work out according to the counsel of his desire, the plan of his desire, a goal, purpose, an overarching plan. So I've summarized this purpose into two parts, which are not really separate at all. They're they're two sides of one coin. Let Let me show them to you. What is it that's the overarching plan, a desire of God governing everything He's doing in the world? Number one, it's the glory of God in Christ. Number two, it's the eternal joy of a holy, redeemed people in God. God receives glory in Christ as He saves people, who for eternity praise the glory of God's grace. And God receives glory through the eternal joy of a redeemed people. And the joy of the redeemed people is directed at the sight of the glory of God. So you can't separate these two things. Um, we're going to look at them individually for the sake of, of clarity. We get a glimpse of this, um, these two aims of God's providence in Psalms, often in the Psalms, but Psalm 104. We read of his providence in the created world. So we talked about this last week. Um, The psalmist recounts all of God's marvelous works from feeding the lions to causing grass to grow, to causing it to rain, to every other natural process that happens. And look at how the psalmist concludes. What is God's purpose in that providence? Verse 31, May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in His works. Why does God do everything that He does in creation? It's for His glory and it's for His joy, His pleasure. Verse 35 I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have been. My, may my meditation be pleasing to Him, for I rejoice in the Lord. So it's not only the joy and pleasure of God, it's the joy and praise of His people. That's why he does everything he does in creation. But that is just a glimpse. He does creation, he does everything else for an even greater ends. It's achieved through creation, but then it's achieved even more spectacularly through something else. So let's look at these. Number one. What is governing God's purposes? What is driving His providence is the glory of God in Christ. The glory of the Father through the work and to the glory of Jesus Christ, His Son. Um, So let's look at two ways He achieves this. Number one um, is to the praise of the glory of His grace. Go to Ephesians chapter 1 with me. Ephesians chapter one. Ephesians chapter one. We're going to read this whole section. Look at verse three. explicitly just what the counsel of His will is. What is it? Verse 11, according to the counsel of His will, what is it? Look at verse 12, to the praise of His glory. God is driven by a pursuit of His glory. God's purpose behind each of His works of providence is unto the accomplishment of the overarching plan of His which is unto the glory and praise of His name. What is the glory of God? The glory of God is His character on public display. It is God gone public. It is the display of His infinite worth and holiness and goodness and power and justice and love on full display. And His goal is that that be praised. That is what is driving all of His works. Look at verse 14. Paul says it again. To the praise of His glory. That's not all. According to this passage, the central feature of God's glory for which He desires to receive praise... The feature which magnifies the glory of God more than anything else is His what? His, you know what it is? Grace, right? Look at verse 6. To the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in Christ and the beloved. God chose you He predestined you, He redeemed you, forgave every one of your sins, so that He would display the infinite riches of His grace to unworthy sinners. It's the basis for everything that He does. It's in Romans 9. But if God, desiring to show His wrath, make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction. Why? In order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory. He did it so His grace might be even more clearly seen, clearly perceived as unconditional and purely unattracted. God has done everything He does so that unworthy sinners who have experienced grace might for eternity plumb the depths of God's glorious grace. Go to Ephesians chapter 2 and look at verse 7. Paul says, so that, he, you know Ephesians 2, and all these things that he's done, he's recounted how he's made us alive. Why? Verse 7, so that, here's the goal, the, goal, the purpose. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his, what? Grace and kindness towards us in Christ. What will we be doing for eternity? We will, for eternity, be coming to know more and more how deep and glorious is God's grace. It's a truth which permeates the Bible. The grace of God, which centers in joy, is fundamentally the result of God's pursuit of His own glory. God wants to display the glory of his name. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He wants to put that on display. And from God's desire and pursuit for his glory, from that pursuit overflows his grace for sinners. That's what he's doing. God's God centeredness is good news for you, it's good news for me. From that flows his grace. But that leads now to the second way in which God achieves this goal. It's not just to the praise of the glory of His his grace. It's to the praise of the centrality of Christ. God does everything that He does in providence to the praise of the centrality of Christ. Central to God's plan and governance of all things is the glory and exaltation of His Son, Jesus Christ. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. Just the last line, Paul says, all things were created through him and for him. That's Christ. All things were created for Christ. Paul says Christ is the goal of all things. Creation was not only created by Christ, it was created for his Glory But how? How would Christ's glory be achieved in creation? We'll look at the very next few verses, 18 through 20. It says, "He is the head of the body, the church he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him, to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Notice it says, all things. This verse, to reconcile all things to him. It's parallel to the all things. In verse 16, all things are for him. In other words, all things exist for Christ's glory, and the way he achieves that is in his cross is in His cross whereby He reconciles all things to Himself. So put it simply, all creation exists for the glory of Christ, namely, the glory of Christ who was crucified and through which He accomplishes all of God's purposes. Let me show you a few more passages. Ephesians 1, 6-7. To the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. The praise of God's glorious grace was demonstrated in the shed blood of Christ. It's for Christ's glory. Same theme is picked up in Revelation 5. They sang a new song, Worthy is the Lamb. Take the scroll, for you were slain. You've made Him the kingdom of priests to God. It was God's plan that all of his purpose of salvation and judgment would be achieved through Christ, who was crucified. The glory of Christ is the redeemer of all people. And the accomplishment of all of God's purposes is the goal of God, all of God's works and providences. Everything leading up to Christ was for that purpose. and Everything after Christ is for that purpose. Listen again to Revelation 13.8. All who dwell on earth will worship the beast. It's not written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. That Jesus would die as a Lamb to accomplish God's purposes was the goal for which God created the world. So that is what God is doing. His providence. That's the goal that's governing Him. Number three. To the praise of the glory of his grace, to the praise of the centrality of Christ, and the praise of the manifold wisdom of God. Romans 11. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments, and inscrutable are his ways. Look to the end of the verse. For from him and through him. And to him are all things. To him be glory forever. This section of Scripture, Romans 9 to 11, uh, is just packed with God's providence and his sovereignty, hardening the nation of Israel so that the Gentiles would be included in, so that then Israel would be regrafted in um, in faith. And Paul concludes with these verses to highlight the inscrutable ways of God, the inscrutable wisdom of God's plan. And Paul says all things in this verse, and that all things refers to His providence at work in the nation of Israel and their hardening and the bringing of the Gentiles in. All things are what? Look at that last line. All things are to Him. To Him be the glory forever. Um, To the praise of His wisdom. We go to Ephesians 3 as well um, for the same point, but we won't. <clears throat> so the glory of God in Christ is the aim of the counsel of God's will. So when we talk about providence, we're talking about everything God does, all of His control is guided by His desired purpose and plan, which is this. Okay, But there's another. It's not a competing, it's a complementing purpose of His, it's the eternal joy of a holy redeemed people in God and Christ. Go with me to Romans 8. Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, 28. Very common verse. One that's often abused. We cannot by that overlook its magnificence. Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. So Just notice how similar this verse is to Ephesians 1.11, our key text. This verse says, God works all things together for good. Ephesians 1.11 says, God works all things according to the counsel of His will. Right? So in both, all things are in view. And in both, God is the one that's doing the working. Ephesians 1, the aim was the praise of the glory of His grace, right? This one, the aim is what? The good of His people. See that? So let me show you a few things here in this verse. Romans eight twenty eight. The promise is for believers, to those who love God. Those who've been called according to His purpose. Those who God has chosen and has saved. Next, God is the subject of the working. So some of your translations, like the ESV, has it, all things work together for good. Um, It's not a helpful translation. It sounds almost like these all things are doing the working. They're the subject. They're working, and somehow they just come together for good. Or, it sounds like if God is involved at all, it's only to the extent of working around or responding to these all things um, to make sure that at least it has a good result. But that totally misses the force of what Paul is saying here. The better translation is God causes all things to work together. Or, God works all things together. God is the subject. He is the one that's doing. He's not merely responding and trying to figure out some way to make these things work for believers. He's sovereign over all things, causing them to do just what they do with the ultimate end of good for believers. John Piper gave the illustration once. uh, stuck with me. He said, God is not like a doctor who puts a Band-Aid on a wound To hopefully bring some good out of the bad. it's not what God's like. God is rather like a skillful surgeon with a sharp scalpel who both wounds and then brings good through it. That's what He's doing. He's not just responding. He's in control of every bit of it for His own good purposes in your life. That's what Romans 8.28 is saying. Finally, what is the good? What does that mean? What is the good this passage is talking about? is repeated in verse 32. Look at that with me. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So there it is, another promise. Works all things for good, and he gives you all things here. You see that? But what is that? What are these all things? Well, they're defined for us in verse 29. Go back with me there. Verse 29, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. That is the good for which God is working, that we would be conformed to the image of Christ for our eternal happiness. And it will ultimately be accomplished in our glorification and in our sanctification in this life. What might some of these all things look like? He gives all things. He works all things for your good. Paul actually tells us. Look at verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it's written, for your sake we're being killed all day long, we're counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in, what does it say? All these things. We're more than conquerors through Him who loved us. God works all things together in His good wisdom, the eternal good and happiness of His chosen people in Christ. in their sanctification and glorification, and then finally in their beautification as His bride. Um, that is what everything He's doing in providence is for. The glory of Christ and the good of His people. Their beautification one day as his, as his bride. Revelation 19. So this is the point. God's government in His providence is His guiding all things according to the counsel of His will such that his overarching purposes are always achieved, the glory of God in Christ and the eternal joy of a redeemed people. It's the aim of his decree. John Piper put it well. <clears throat> he said, God's governing is unto this goal, the overflowing joy of God himself and the holiness and happiness of his people and the glory of of His name. So that is God's purpose. That's God's purpose in His government. Next, we come quickly to the next aspect of His government, which is His preservation. I put preservation under His his government. Um, Now that we have an idea of what God's overarching purposes are, we can zoom back into the significant way God works it out. And He works it out in... Preservation. It does in the preservation of creation and preservation of his people. So look at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 to 3 about Christ. Christ created the world. And then verse 3 he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Um, so when you hear that, do not get in mind the, the picture of the Greek god Atlas sort of holding the world on his shoulder. That's not the idea here. The, the word in Greek he upholds is the idea to carry or to bear along. right? So it's not just the idea that Christ holds it, but he's carrying all things from one point to another. He's sustaining all things to a, to a goal. He upholds all things according to the word of his his power. So that's his preservation. And he does it, number one, for his creation. Creation is continually dependent on the creator for for life. So listen to some of these texts. Job 12. In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Daniel 5. Nebuchadnezzar. But the God in whose hand is your breath, in whose are all your ways, you have not honored. That's why man should fear God, should honor God, like we heard this morning. He holds your breath in his hand. Man's dependent on him for preservation, for his very breath. First Timothy 6.13, I charge you the presence of God who gives life to all things. He preserves his creation this is preservation of creation. It's continually dependent on the creator for life. Um, but next, the creation is held together by Christ. Again, Colossians 1.16. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the creator and the sustainer. He causes the world to continue and not fall apart. So God in Christ sustains creation. That's His government and His preservation. Next, He doesn't just preserve His creation, He preserves His people. You see, He doesn't just preserve His creation as an ends in itself. He preserves His creation ultimately unto the ends of the preservation of His people. Creation is just the theater. Creation is the stage of, on which the drama of God's plan of redemption is unfolded. That's why he preserves creation, so he could preserve his people. How does he do that? Number one, he preserves his people by preserving the creation. So look at 2 Peter 3, verses 5-7. through They deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens that existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water, obviously talking about the flood. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are what? Stored up. There's the preservation. Being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. That's this preservation of creation, but for what purpose? It's preserving it until the day of judgment. But why? Well, verse 9, The Lord's not slow to fulfill His promise, but He's patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The purpose of God in not destroying everything now is God's purpose of redemption and His gracious patience. The day will come which He preserves it no longer. Heavens will pass away, will be dissolved, be set on fire and dissolve. Heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But until that day, God preserves it. He preserves creation. He holds it together. He sustains it with the goal of saving all of His own and accomplishing all of His purposes in redemption. Number two, He preserves His creation and He preserves His people and the way he does that is the preservation of God's people is experienced through his preserving of their faith. His preserving of their faith. I love this passage, John 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they follow me, and I give to them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. You're not just as secure as Christ's hand is strong. You're not just as secure as the Father's hand is strong. You're as secure as Christ's devotion to the Father is strong. That's what Jesus is saying. He will preserve all his own. Romans 8.30, those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. No dropouts. He preserves them. Philippians 1.6, I'm confident of this. He began a good work in you. He will pre- bring it to completion. As you've always worked out, uh, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, much more in my absence, work out your salvation. For God is at work in you. There's His preservation, His providence in your life to sustain you to will and work for His pleasure. Hebrews 13, working in us all that is pleasing in His sight through Christ Jesus. In other words, Christ preserves His people certainly and completely. And He does it through His providence. Through the circumstances in your life, causing it all to work for your good and your sanctification and the preservation of your faith in all of the ways that He does And He uses means. He uses the preaching of the Word. He uses one another. Um, and ultimately, He stands behind all of that to preserve you, His sheep, to the end, to bring you safely home. So that's what we mean by the providence of, of God. It's His complete control over all things to cause all things to achieve His overarching purpose and His plan. It's the praise of the glory of His grace in Christ and the eternal joy and salvation of his bride, and it's experienced as he continues to preserve us and maintain the created order and our faith all the way to the end. So there's a lot there. Um, any questions before I go on to wrap things up? Questions, comments? I'll okay. <clears throat> give you a few objections. People that hear this, they often respond in a couple ways. Um, they hear God's providence, His absolute control over all things. Um, it's effectual, it's universal. And they respond by saying something like this. It, it all amounts to fatalism. It's cold determinism. We're robots. There's no meaning in life. It's just determinism. But the whole point of providence is to demonstrate that God's control is nothing at all like fatalism. It's nothing like fatalism of the Greeks or any other human philosophy. God's control is certainly effectual and universal, but it's nothing like fatalism because it doesn't override the human will. Like we've said, people still do what they desire to do, but God mysteriously works in and through it for his plans and and purposes. It's also nothing like fatalism because all of God's works are governed by his good and wise hand. In fatalism, there is some impersonal, whimsical power that's just doing whatever they want. That is not providence. In providence, all of God's works are governed by his good and wise hand. Such that it achieves the best results in the best way. The glory of God and Christ and the eternal joy of His people. It's not fatalism. Number two, another objection. If these doctrines are true, then it makes prayer or evangelism unnecessary. Um, This is an example of people dismissing a biblical doctrine by making it contradict a parallel doctrine. The Bible says both are true and necessary. The Bible tells us that God works through means. He works through our prayer and evangelism. He commands us to do it. The Bible says there's a sense in which we have not because we ask not, James 4. And there's a sense in which people cannot believe in Him whom they have never heard, and they cannot hear without someone preaching, Romans 10. In other words, God always accomplishes His purpose, but He always does it, through the faithful lives of his people. You can't dismiss either one of those. And it's sinful to try to pry into the mysteries of, of God or to excuse our obedience and disobedience by abusing this doctrine. Number two, another response to this. The exact opposite is really the truth, isn't it? If God were not sovereign, if he was not reigning through His providence, if you're not in complete control, then why in the world pray? If God is not powerful to accomplish His purposes, then why pray at all? You're just going to encourage Him to to nudge somebody a bit? Why pray? Why evangelize if He's not sovereign to bring somebody from death to life? I can't do that, and you can't do that. Why pray? Why evangelize if He's not sovereign? The exact opposite is, is the truth. Um, it's because of his providence that we're encouraged to pray. Because of his providence, we're encouraged to evangelize. So those are a couple of objections to his providence. That brings us now to some applications. Um, and this is really the, uh, the purpose, right? We don't study theology as an end in itself. We do it to know God. We do it to be changed, to remember, have those biblical glasses now through which we view all of life. It's changing the way we live and think and functioning in this, in this world. Um, let me give you a few of them. Number one, it's the need to live according to God's revealed will and not his unrevealed sovereign will. That's the first application. God is sovereign. But you don't know what those specific decrees are, nor what His purposes in them are. You know the overarching one. But He's not revealed the details to you. Deuteronomy 29, 29, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. The doctrine of God's providence calls us To live in light of what God has revealed to us. In the light of what we know he's accomplishing in the world. Um, We don't know how all the pieces connect. um, But we do know the ultimate goal. And that is how we are to view life. Um, You're not responsible to figure out what God's sovereign will is in each particular thing that takes place in your life. You can't do that. There's no way to do that. But you do know the overarching purposes and plans, and you do know what He's commanded of you, and that's what we are to live to live by. One way we can go wrong here is by being quick to assign a certain understanding of God's purposes around us, especially in, in calamities. Um, example, some calamity happens, and we say immediately, "This certainly is the result of God's judgment, right on these people for, for their sin. Certainly we know God judges people for sin and He uses calamity sometimes to do it. Um, Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. We can't speak for sure. Um, One thinks of the failure of Job's friends here or of Jesus' disciples in John 9, the man born blind. Who sinned? Is this man or or, or his parents? Um, So be careful how you apply this doctrine. Um, We know generally that Calamities happen because of the curse on the world, but we don't know the details. Our answer should be something like this. Why did the tsunami wipe out the people? Why did the tornado happen? Why did whatever happened? We, we say God is in control. This is what Jesus said to a calamity that happened in his time. He said, or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed do you think that they were worse offenders than all the offenders who lived in Jerusalem? This is certainly the judgment of God. Jesus says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. That's how we respond to the calamity of, that takes place around us. It's a call to repentance. Um, I don't know the specific reasons God has done it, but I do know this. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. That's how you respond in those situations. So number one, we don't need to figure out God's sovereign will and all the details. We know His revealed will. Live in light of that. Number two, know the duty of reflecting upon God's works of providence in our lives. Let me give you a few verses. This is a duty for you. I'm not saying to figure out those sovereign things that we just said you couldn't but reflecting on how God is providentially working in your life to accomplish those overarching things that we had just talked about. Psalm 9. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. Psalm 105, five. Remember the wondrous works that he's done. His miracles and the judgments he's uttered. There's a number of other texts. John Flavel in that little book, um, he really emphasizes this. He says like this, he says, Without due observation of the works of providence, no praise can be rendered to God for any of them. If we're not aware of the things going on around us and of God's providential hand in all of them, you can't give thanks to God for them. Praise and thanksgiving for mercies depend upon this act of, Of observation of them and cannot be performed without it. So be a people who have an eye out for God's providence in your life. Be constantly drawing the line from what God has done in your circumstances um, to what He's revealed to you in the the Bible. John Flavel said that we, we read God's providence as we read Hebrew, we read it backwards. Uh, we don't know God's providence in the future, but we can read it looking back, see how the Lord has brought us, see what he's done and accomplished in our lives through all kinds of things things we didn't expect, trials, pain, suffering, goodness, joys. How do we know what they are? We interpret it through the lenses of what he's told us he's accomplishing. Um, discern those, look for those, identify those. God's past providences are often assurances for future ones. Listen to David. The Lord who delivered me out of the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to him, Lord be with you. See that? Past deliverances. Looks to the future. Paul says the same thing about. Um, It's calamity that happened to him at the end. He said, he delivered us from such a deadly peril, past experience of providence, and he will deliver us. Confidence knowing the Lord's devotion to him. um, Ultimately a deliverance to heaven, to eternity. So know um, God's providence in your life. It's a duty. Examine it. Be on the lookout for them. Finally, the benefits of knowing and considering God's providence. There's a lot of benefits here, isn't there? Um, he's sovereign. He's not just sovereign, he's reigning and governing in his providence, right? To a good end. Um, there's a lot of benefits there, isn't there? What are some of them? You tell me. I got, I think, nine written down here. What are some benefits? Yeah. Amen. Amen. It takes the weight off us, and then it frees us to just be faithful, right? And and uh, give it to Him. Amen. So if you didn't hear that, He said it. It takes the weight off us in evangelism. Um, it's the Lord's work, and uh, and He can do it, and He does do it, and He does it through faithful, faithful messengers. Amen. What else? What are benefits to knowing God's providence? Everything we just talked about. Amen. Amen. We rejoice in all things. How in the world can you fulfill that command? Rejoice always. You have to know this, right? Events that are happening, they're not random, they're not out of God's control. He's that surgeon with a scalpel, right? He's doing it for your good and His glory. Amen. Rejoice. What else? Amen. Trust. It's comfort. It's a repose. uh, Dependency on Him. A sweet consolation. Knowing He's on our side. Right? The sovereign of the universe is on your side, brothers and sisters. What else? Benefits. I'm sorry? Yeah. Good. Assurance and salvation. Good. God is the one who is... The ultimate cause behind repentance and faith, then He certainly is the one that's going to preserve it, right? And keep you to the end. Amen. See some over here? Yeah. Yep. That's the confirming the you or into the image, uh, conforming of you into the image of my son. And, of course, Paul lists uh, a number towards the end of the chapter. There are tragic events yeah. that aren't separated, but there are also the, those good things that happen in our lives also work to that same That's end. Right. Amen. Amen, and that's the life of faith, right? We don't know tribulations, trials, distress, nakedness, peril, famine, sword—all these things are happening. Why I don't know. You know Romans eight twenty eight promise. I think it was Thomas Brooks, another Puritan, called that a the divine cordial. Right? It's a comfort. We don't know how these things are working. We know He's working them, though. We know the good is. We live by faith, right? What he's accomplishing. Amen. Anything else? Benefits. It is six fifteen. Yes. Hmm. No fear for the future. Amen. It's good. Do not worry about your life, Jesus said. Right, Matthew six. Um, he's sovereign. Good. Well, there are many others I could I could give, but. Um, we will wrap it up here. Be a worshiper. Worship God for His providence. Um, know Him. See Him. Praise Him. Thank Him. Um, see it everywhere. See His fingerprints on all of life and interpret it through the lenses of Scripture. Let's pray. We love you, Father. Thank you for loving us first. I ask that you would help us, Lord. I comfort us with these doctrines. Let us not abuse them. Let us use them. That we would live lives of fearlessness, boldness, faithfulness, courage, holiness, humility. Knowing everything, Lord, is sprinting towards your purpose, which is the exaltation of your glory and the glory of your grace in Christ and our eternal happiness. And you will bring us there certainly. But Lord, the way you've determined to do that is you've planned out the path for each of our lives sovereignly and the way that will bring us there. Sanctify us and bring most glory to your name and most happiness to our souls. In Christ. We love you, Father. Thank you. Bless us now as we go. In Jesus' precious name. Amen.